I want to read our passage for the word today and then pray over the word. This is out of 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and this is when David is bringing the ark back from the Philistines. The ark's been at Obed-Edom's house for uh, quite a while now. The Philistines had stolen away the ark of the covenant, and so he's going to bring it back, and, <clears throat> and this is that this is that coming back event, and it really launches. It really launches uh, Zion. It, it launches uh, the house of the Lord uh, in Jerusalem like never before. It launches Davidic worship as we know it, uh, Davidic worship, and so it's just a crazy, crazy time uh, and exciting time. And here's what it says: First Chronicles 15. Verse 25, so David and all the elders of Israel and the commanders of the units of a thousand went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Everybody say rejoicing. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of linen as were the Levites who were carrying the Ark and as were the musicians, and Kenaya, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. Or the King James says he was the master of the song. And David also wore a linen... Can't be cold. Can you get me warm? Cold's bad for the voice. Love you. Thank you. That'll bless me. Give him a blessing. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were the Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the musicians, and Cananiah, who was in charge of the singing of the choir. So imagine there's a thousand commanders, a, a thousand of the chief commanders, there's choirs, musicians, singers, there's Levites, right? And they're all singing, and David also wore a linen ephod. So all of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts. Everybody say shouts. With the sound of ram's horns and trumpets of cymbals and the playing of the lyres and the harps. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your, your strumming the chord of our heart today. For you moving upon us with the richness of the Spirit for you opening the eyes of our understanding and waking new things within us today. We give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, yeah. Always lukewarm for the vocal cords. Hallelujah. Everybody happy? Doing good? So I want you to consider, you know, what church looks like, where church is, what the congregational gathering is. We've been talking a little bit about the ecclesia. My, my message today is titled, Victory is in Your Mouth. And, and I think that most of us, certainly those of us that grew up in religious environments in the church, around the church, as a part of the church. But those of us also who've come in more recently, uh, we weren't a part of the church. Our mindset of church or what church is, you know, church is something you attend. It's not something you are. 
That's often the mindset. And, you know, we use the verbiage even in that vernacular, I'm going to church. Are you going to church this Sunday? Do you go to church anywhere? Where do you attend church? We, we, we see it oftentimes as something we attend, not something that we are. And that's built into the framework a little bit of this lit, liturgical model that we have of the church, that church is something you actually observe. It's not something you participate in. So when we go to church, not only are we the church, but when we go to church, and as we're doing that very thing, because of this liturgical model that has been so pervasive in culture, and because we've had a powerless experience and a powerless church in many ways, what happens is it's not much different than going to an opera, going to a ballet, going to a theatrical experience, we, we actually, you know, we get showered up, we get dressed up, we get shaved up, we get cleaned up, and we actually go to be more observers than we are participants. We, we don't recognize the value of our own expression, the power of our own expression, and so we're coming to observe. And here at the church, at this liturgical place, we have professional prayers who will pray your prayers for you, more professionally than you can pray. And we have professional singers who will sing your song for you, and you can just watch them sing. And, and we want you know, the very best singers so that as you're observing, as you're observing, uh, you're able to observe something that's very concertable, something you know, very well done, right? And then we have, you know, special readers who read a reading for you. And then we have theologians who've been trained in lofty thoughts that are so high you don't even understand them. And so we want those theologians to wax eloquent on the exegesis of Scripture and get into the deeper things that go beyond practical application. Anybody in the building? All of this is happening while we sit in our seats and observe this happening. And I want to submit to you that this is not the biblical type. This is not what God had in mind. This is not what God wanted. This is not what God ordained for the church, be it the ecclesia in the community or be it the ecclesia that gathers. It's not what he had in mind. And what happens is because we have, we've allowed this liturgical model or we've been convinced or we, you know, what happens is as religion devolves into a liturgical model instead of a life-giving prophetic model, as church devolves into that, then of course for us to get along, we have to go along. For us to fit in, we have to look like that which everyone looks like. And so as we come into that kind of an environment, if you were brought up in that kind of an environment, you found that in that environment to, to flourish, to be recognized, to be known, to fit in, to have place, to, to have a position, to be, then you had to fit into that too. So you also had to devolve into that and remain devolved into this lower realm of expression because of this pious liturgical model. And again, it's not what God has ordained. Then secondly, what happens is, is that because this is so pervasive with regard to us, then we take it outside this building, and that's how we live outside the building as well. So then all of my life, I've heard Christians talk about 
how that their faith is personal. They don't really want to, you know, it's not right to kind of, you know, force that on others. They don't talk about their, their religion in public places. They, don't, they, aren't, they aren't loud about their religion. They don't share their, about their religion. Their religion is a personal thing. We don't, you know, don't want to bump into others with regard to their religious expression because their religious expression is their personal thing. And all of that is a bunch of biblical hogwash. You're packing life. Don't you think the enemy wants you to think all of these stupid thoughts that I just named off? Because he can stifle the church. If he can silence the church, quiet the church, and get the church to think we shouldn't talk about our faith, and we should be, we should be withdrawn, we should be quiet, we should be timid, we should be pious. Don't you think if the enemy can convince us, these are like doctrines of demons that Paul actually warned the church about. Paul said, beware of doctrines of demons that will come into your church. Paul says that even, or, or the, you know, the writers say that, that uh, uh, the enemy can come uh, as, uh, pretending to be a minister of righteousness, but yet deceiving the very elect. What in the world have we settled for? What, what have we devolved into? What have we allowed? And all the while, Satan is ruining our culture. You know what I think? I think that in many ways, and of course, not at New Horizon, look at each other and just say, not at New Horizon? Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I think what has happened is that uh, the lukewarm church, we wonder why the church is in such, you know, why the church is going through, so, you know, why the world is so bad. And I think because the church has become a lukewarm expression of Jesus. And if you're lukewarm, you're going to get spit out. And the spitting might continue until you decide to get hot or cold. I think that if the salt is not salty, it's good for nothing to be tr but to be trampled underfoot. If we aren't salty, church, if we aren't salty, if you're not finding some dead meat around you and throwing some salt on it, Chances are you are worthless to culture, you are worthless in the spirit realm, and you just, you're going to be trampled underfoot. This is part of what's happened to us as a religious people, as a ecclesia. We've forgotten who we were. We've gotten away from what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to express ourselves, even what congregations are to look like and what congregation expressions are to be. We've become so mellow, so seeker-sensitive that... Can the Spirit even find us? And this is not the model that we're called to. What we just read is the model that we're called to. What we read just now was the beginning of the building of David's tabernacle. And David's tabernacle was this strange, unique, foreshadowing, pre-existing, before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, before the outpouring of the Spirit, before salvation. God did something crazy with David. He allowed David to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, set it up in a tent on the highest hill in Jerusalem called Zion, meaning the shining of the Lord, the brightness of glory. He sets up a tent. He puts the Ark of the Covenant in the tent. 
And for 40 years, the Ark of the Covenant is there, not behind a veil, but open for all to see. And David sets up three teams of singers and worship leaders and musicians and those who will be yielded to the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of God. And for 24 hours a day for 40 years, they sing, pray, prophesy, and dance, and rejoice, and shout, and clap, and prophesy, and sing, and clap, and shout, and, and rejoice, and go crazy 24 hours a day for 40 years. This is where, this is, this, this is how the psalm, the psalms that came to be. This is, this is how those prophetic songs were written. Cananiah or Chananiah, I'm not saying it right. It's with a K in some translations. It's with a C-H in others. It says here that he was in charge of the singing. The King James says he was the master of the song. The, the word song there is masa. M-A-S-S-A, and it means burden. The singers, the singers were not singing dead hymns like I did all of my life growing up. The singers were not singing these, these, these old songs. I'm not saying the Lord can't breathe on a hymn or breathe on a song. Uh, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, that it wasn't just a repetition of liturgy or ceremony the singers were actually catching the burden of the Lord in the tent of meeting, in that Davidic tabernacle, and the ministry of offering that was being offered up before the Lord was the sacrifice of the fruit of their lips. The sacrifice of the fruit of their lips. Without the fruit of their lips, there would have been no offering. It was the offering of the sacrifice of the fruit of their lips. And the musicians, as they would play, and the horns as they would blow, and the drums, the lyres and the cymbals. This is happening, and as this would happen, the burden, masa, meaning burden, the burden of the Lord. The thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord, that which the Lord was revealing, that which was on Father's heart would come into that tent of meeting and they would begin to prophesy. There, there's a shift for you right there. There's a shift for you right there. Is that as you come into our gatherings, because this is the type, this is the type that house that existed, that tabernacle, is called David's tabernacle, that tabernacle is actually the model for the New Testament congregational gatherings. Now, how do we know that? I'll, I'll read that to you in a minute. But, but here's a shift for you right there. When, when you come in to the presence of the Lord, when you come into the tent of meeting, when you come in the tabernacle with us together as the ecclesia, you know, who, you know who presides over this gathering as the president of this senate, as the, as, the, as the apostle of this house? You know who presides over this gathering? The Lord presides over this gathering. We want to get his burden. We want the burden of the Lord to rest upon us so that we begin to prophesy with him, so that we begin to sing with him, so that we begin to sing a new song 
with him. You don't have to, and this is just a side note, but when you come into our gatherings, you don't have to sing every word that's on that screen. We're hoping that we're creating an atmosphere where you catch the burden of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord touches your spirit, where you begin to be activated in the spirit realm, where you begin to tap into the prophetic, prophetic anointing, where you begin to get an expanded inner man, where you begin to hear what he's saying, you begin to feel what he's feeling, and right there where you are, you begin to prophesy, you begin to pray, you begin to petition, you begin to declare, you begin to partner with the anointed one he, the president of our senate, of our legislative ecclesia, he who presides over this meeting, who has something on his heart, something on his mind, and he wants to deposit it into you, that you would bring it up out of you with expression. That's what a song is supposed to be, by the way. A song is prophecy put to music. A song is the burden of the Lord put to music. That's what a song is. A song is not like a ditty. The songs that we sing, these songs that we sing and the songs that we want to come alive within us, these aren't country western songs with Jason Aldean. These are, these are, this is... Hello. We're tapping into something deeper. We're tapping into something richer. We're, we're tapping into something much more powerful than any experience that culture offers us a richness. Go over Acts chapter 15. I want to show you Acts chapter 15, and I want to prove to you, and then we'll go back and read a couple passages, but I want you to read the Psalms from now on. If this is new information to you, I want you to read the Psalms from now on out of this understanding and this mindset that these psalms were created in a prophetic atmosphere before the ark of the Lord. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Uh, Acts chapter 15. So Acts chapter 15, a lot of Gentiles were coming to the Lord, and that was kind of blowing them away. Why are so many Gentiles coming to the Lord? And they're coming to the Lord out of every nation. They're, they're, they're giving their life to Yeshua. They're recognizing him as Messiah. They're turning to him. Uh, their hearts are turned to him. And, and what should we do with them? What burden should we put on them about the law? Uh, they're having this huge discussion because they're recognizing all of these Gentiles, people from nations outside of the Hebrew nations were coming to the Lord. So they're having a big debate about this in Acts chapter 15. And they're recognizing how that the Holy Spirit is moving to bring salvation to these people. So as this debate winds down, you're welcome to read the whole thing, but as the debate winds down in Acts chapter 15, uh, this is what happens. After they stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon, this is Simon Peter, has related how God concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. Now with this, the words of the prophets agree. This is interesting. The prophets agree, oh wow, this salvation is going outside. It's going outside of just the Jewish people. 
Wait, 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 wait. I think the prophets talked about this, and now he's going to quote out of Amos chapter 6. He says the prophets agree that this was actually on God's agenda. This was on his time calendar. This was on, this was on his docket. He was actually going to redeem Gentiles. He was going to save Gentiles. And this is what he says, quoting out of Amos. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. So this is interesting because uh, 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 we see... We see God putting an emphasis on a tabernacle that only existed for 40 years. We see God putting an emphasis on a tabernacle that wasn't observational in its basic philosophy, but it was participational. God putting emphasis on a tabernacle where it was the fruit of the lips that were the supreme sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats and rams. God's putting an emphasis on something that was a precursor to the salvation that now comes through Jesus. And in that tabernacle, it was loud, it was wild, it was crazy, it was exciting, it was lively, it was prophetic, it was powerful. The presence of the Lord was there. All of these crazy things existed in that tabernacle for 40 years. And now we see the apostles saying, guys, 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 this is what God's doing. God's actually fulfilling what the prophet Amos saw. He saw this hundreds of years ago. God's actually fulfilling this. And the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David this free, bold, lively expression has a lot to do with the gathering of all the Gentiles. Now, I want to tell you that's contrary to all church growth. Church growth philosophies will tell you that if we want more Gentiles saved, more Romanians, more Swedens, Swedish, can't even say it right, and I am one, we want more of the Irish saved. We want more of the Africans saved. Any Gentile, anybody that's not Hebrew, if we want more of them drawn to the Lord, we have to be quiet. Pious. Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. This is what church growth is going to tell you. Church growth is going to tell you that, that seekers are turned off by God. Too much God will turn the seeker away, so we have to be seeker-sensitive. Seeker-sensitive means shh. But that's not the word. It's not the scripture. It's not what God was saying. God was actually saying that your boldness is powerful. Your words are powerful. Your expression is powerful. Your freedom is, is powerful. And you can't, you know what, when we all come in and we're quiet, you, you, you can't even shift the atmosphere enough for the heart to be turned. 
Hello. 1 Corinthians 14 says, Oh, if an unbeliever comes into your midst and you all prophesy, that's when their hearts will be convicted. And that's when they'll say God is in this place. That's the Bible. We got to go back to the Bible. We got to get away from all of the garbly goo, all of the liturgy, all of the ceremonial pomp and circumstance. We got to get back to the Bible. The Bible says you're important and your voice is important and your speech is important and your prayer is important and the enemy wants to silence you. He wants to quiet you. He wants to shut you up. He wants to clamp you down. He wants to mask you. He wants to whatever. But that's because he knows more about your power than you know about your power. He knows something about you. He knows something about your voice. He knows something about the word in your mouth, the word of prayer or the word of praise or the word of a shout or the word of a rejoice. He knows something about it that you don't even know. So that's why he's infiltrated our circles, our gatherings, our ecclesias, our congregations with shh, quietness. And God is saying no more. God is saying no more. This is meant to be an erpy, burpy, bubbly place of new wine. This is meant to be, new wine is unpredictable. It's not smooth at all. New wine is not smooth at all. It's unpredictable, and it's going to, oh, somebody's burping over there. Oh, somebody's burping over there. And it's, it's, it, 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 it's crazy, and, it's, and there's pressure, and it's, it's, and it's building, and it's growing, and, it, and, 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 and the old wine skin can't handle it. The old, the liturgical wineskin can't handle it. The be quiet wineskin can't handle it. And God has to do this. He's calling us to himself. He's refreshing, reviving, calling out for himself a people who will walk with him, who will say yes to him, and who will rejoice again in him. Woo! Look at, uh, look, look at some of these passages, my goodness. Look at some of these passages. Just read the Psalms. Read the Psalms sometime. Go ahead and read the Bible. It'll scare the crud out of you. <laughs> Psalm 35, 27. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say once in a blue moon, let them say on Thanksgiving Day only. Let them, say, let them say continually, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant and my tongue shall be stilled. My tongue shall be quieted. My, I, my tongue will be cautious. No, my tongue shall declare thy righteousness and thy praise all day long. Did you know what? If you start living like the weirdo that you are as a new creation, people around you just start realizing that's normal. After a while, if you're working with painters, you're working with bankers, you're working with real estate agents, you're working with whoever you're working with, you know what? They just thought, wow. Your normal becomes the normal, and, the, and they begin to feel a little bit like they're left out. And that's a good feeling. Listen to Psalm 132, 13. These are just a couple of verses. You know the Psalms are full of this. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Come on, and this is where you dwell. This is where you abide already. This is my rest forever. Here I will dwell. I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will clothe her priest with salvation. 
Last I checked, we are kings and priests. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. That's, that's, about, that's about the way it is in normal churches right there. Two of you said amen. The rest of you, the rest of you, like good Europeans, are like, yeah, it's pretty good. Wow. Not a, uh, not a bad point, Pastor. That's, Heavens, the Murgatroyd, would you wake yourself up? Pinch your bottom and see if you're still alive, please. You, you, you got to get saved again, all over again, if you aren't confident that God's got you covered, God has delivered you, God has you saved and set apart, God has sanctified you, God will make a way for you. Well, that was 15 of you, glory to God. I refuse to move during church. And I mean it. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. That was actually a song. We sang that song. Europeans especially, they loved it. Because you, you didn't want to move when you sang it. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Of course not, you're dead. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all ye people. You know when you clap your hands, you know where clapping came from? You've heard this before. You know where clapping came from? Cla clapping came from the cutting of a covenant. To clap the hand was to, was to mingle the blood of a covenant. When you clap, be careful what you clap for. When you clap, you know when my voice is a little bit weak, you're going to see me up here clapping crazily. You know why? It is one of the spiritual ways that I'm able to express I'm in covenant with you, God. I'm in agreement with that word, God. I'm on it. I'm on it. You got me. I'm with you. Let's go, Lord. Come on, come on, come on. So to clap your hands, to clap your hands is not, it's, don't, don't, don't think of it as common ever again in your life. Don't think of it as something you just give anywhere. To clap your hands is to say, I'm in covenant with you. It is a physical expression of amen. The Holy Spirit goes crazy over clapping. Our claps are ushered into the very throne room. Oh my goodness. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of joy, with a voice of triumph, the King James says. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over the earth. He subdues people under him and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. You want, you want our congregational gatherings or any congregational gathering of two or three or more to be instantly, instantly filled with the glory of God? He ascends 
with a shout. He takes his place on the throne of a gathering to preside over the ecclesia when the ecclesia shout. When there is a shout in the house for him, it will shift the entire atmosphere of a place. He ascends with a shout. Woo! Sing praises to God, sing praises, verse 6. Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. Words are powerful, church. Words are so powerful. We have such a divine privilege, and Satan wants to remove our privilege. We have such a divine privilege because no other created being has the privilege of speech, of words, of communication like this. Words, words are one of the few things that make us God-like. It's part of how he made us in his image. Three things I want to tell you the words are. Words are, number one, spiritual seeds. The Bible tells us throughout Luke 8, 11, the seed is the word of God. First Peter 1, 21 through 23, we are born of incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. Words are seeds. What are seeds? Seeds contain the DNA to reproduce in a mature form, what they carry in a microscopic form. Seeds can carry, seeds carry the DNA to reproduce what seems to be small, what seems to be a little thing, what seems to be, for me to say, I love you to Joel, and I haven't done it in three or four years, but me, for me, for me to say I love you to Joel, it's literally, it's just a small, it's I love you. Three words, three words. Very few, very few letters, right? But I release that. It has the power, those words have the power to bring a mature manifestation into her heart and into the atmosphere of our relationship. Small thing but they carry the DNA to shift with maturity the atmosphere of our hearts. So words are like this. Words are like this. Number two, words are spirit. They literally are spirit. They transcend the natural realm. Words transcend the natural realm and they interact fully with the spirit realm. I know this is going to sound funny, but I have to ask. Do any of you ever get goosebumps when you say something? Do any of you ever get goosebumps when somebody else says something? Do you ever take note of what it is that brought about the goosebumps? Any of you ever take note of it? When I was growing up, we had a song, you know, I can feel the brush of angels. I see glory all around. You know, I... I you know, is it angels? Is it the Holy Spirit? I'm telling you what. Sometimes when you say something that's truth or powerful or somebody else says something, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the very thing that was said. Why? Because words are spiritual. Words are spiritual. 
Words are spiritual. The enemy wants to silence our words, but we are literally in a crucible of warfare right now over our nation and over the earth. And it's not a hopeless war because the enemy has... The, the, it's not a hopeless war because God has a confidence that the ecclesia is arising. The ecclesia is arising. Number three, words are the containers of the future. James says they are the rudder to life, the rudder to the ship, the containers of the future. Listen to James chapter 3, 3. Now, if we put into the horse's mouths bits, a bit into their mouth, so that they obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue. How about our congregational gatherings? You, you know, uh, what happens in an opera, ballet, or an entertainment or a liturgical-based mindset is that we get showered up and we come, and we're going to come and observe church. You know what happens when you come to observe church? You become a judge of church. Oh, that song wasn't very good. You know, she was off pitch right there. Did you hear that guitar note? Oh, my word, I heard three bad keys on the piano this morning. I can't believe the sound. I know, the EQ on that sound is so terrible. The pastor, did you see those pants he was wearing? Yes, I know. What does he think he is? What a stupid guy. All right, so you become a judge of the church instead. Of, but what did you really want? Where did you want the ship to go? What did you really want? What you really wanted was you wanted signs and wonders. You wanted love and ministry. You wanted restoration. You wanted fear to be gone. You wanted the presence of the Lord. You wanted goodness and heaven. That's what you really wanted, right? Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue. See, the Davidic model and the tabernacle of David is not a liturgical model. It's a participatory model. And so when you come in, you actually decide in the car or maybe on your way, like we had worship playing in the car because we learned years ago that we'd fight together in the car if we didn't. We solved most of those fights. For a few years, we couldn't ride in the same car together to church because that would totally destroy the whole service. So... But things are fine now. We actually get along. Love you, honey. Twice in one day. Wow. And so I need the band up on the platform quick. We got to close. But, but on your way into church, you can actually listen, listen, listen. Can the camera follow me? Sorry, online people. Get your communion ready, too, because we're going to rush into that. So, but on the way into church, you can be coming in to find your seat, and you can be setting your tongue in the direction of the inclination that you want to go. Lord, you're going to be here today. Oh, I welcome you here today, Lord. Oh, burden of the Lord, I welcome you to come upon my heart. Ha. Prophetic mantle, prophetic burden, I, I want to receive from you today. Oh, Lord, I bless the worship team. I, I bless the ushers. I bless the teachers. I, oh, Lord, I just get an agreement that even if there's a few... A little goof-ups today. 
we're going to see you and not the goof up. Shishu is going to be lifted up in this place today, Lord. And, and so you just begin to set your tongue like a rudder to direct. And you know what? You know what? When we start doing this, it'll shift this atmosphere so crazy. It'll, it'll get so crazy. Things will just start moving. I mean, the church is going to become like off the charts amazing. But it's because we've become those who cooperate with him and the glory that he wants to bring into our midst. Come on, stand with me this morning. I want to close just by talking about your heart today. And I'm getting my communion ready. I'm inviting you to do so if you're watching online, if you'd get your communion ready. We're in a divine partnership with Father, with Jesus. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's mind-boggling. It's no wonder it's so easy to rejoice. We're in this divine partnership. He's brought us into the essence of his love and into his family. But it begins by us humbly recognizing that we need him. That no, that no goodness of my own will actually bring me into his presence. No goodness of my own will bring about this unity of communion, common union with him. No goodness of my own. And in my own self, in my flesh, in my, in my own weakness, I, I'm prone to fail. I'm prone to blow it. So I rely on him. I rely on him. His blood covers me. His sacrifice is sufficient for me. Not that I'm flagrant about that. I'm thankful about that. I'm humbled by that. And we, when we recognize what he's done for us, what Father's done for us in the sacrifice of Jesus to bring us into the family, not only are we humbled by it, but then we welcome Holy Spirit to live within us. And in doing so, we cooperate with him more and more. It becomes easy to cooperate with him. And those little nudges that he gives you, he doesn't want you to just think about them. He wants you to say them. He wants you to declare them. He wants you to proclaim them. He wants you to rejoice in him. Because that's where power is released in the spirit realm to subdue the enemy and to push the enemy back. That's where power is released to bring transformation to families, people, homes, and cultures. So let's say this together. Let's say, as we hold the bread, Father, I receive what you've done in Jesus. I receive the sacrifice of Jesus as sufficient, not only to cleanse me, but to bring me near you, to bring me into the family. And I rejoice. I rejoice that you've made me a new creation and that I and you are partners, redemptive partners in Jesus' name. Take the breath together.
Lord, we ask for our assignments now as we take the cup. We want you to send us out into this crazy world with a crazy that's better, a crazy that's bigger, a crazy that's richer, a crazy that's more full, the new wine of the Spirit. We want you to send us out. So we say yes to you. Take the cup together. Bless your church. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a great reminder that God's victory is in our mouth. And God's victory is loud. So thank you for joining our service today and uh, being a part of this great experience of what the Lord is doing in our lives. If this is your first time listening to this message and you would like to give your life to the Lord, we welcome you to make contact with us. Reach, at us, uh, reach us through um, the internet, on our email, or um, our website, different ways that you can connect with us. Thank you for joining us, and remember, victory is loud. God bless you.